welcome to Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection. I'm your host, Oliver Brackenbury. The Merrill Collection of Science Fiction, Speculation, and Fantasy is the Western Hemisphere's largest publicly accessible archive of genre materials. Each week, we explore a different world of genre fiction in conversation with a special guest. Today I'll be discussing Norse mythology and fantasy fiction with Sephira Henderson, who is the head of both the Merrill and Osborne Collections. For those who aren't familiar, that's the Osborne Collection of Early Children's Books, a special collection dedicated to the history of children's books the way the Merrill is dedicated to genre writing. You can find it one floor up from the Merrill Collection. As I said, Sephira is the head of both collections, and has been since 2017. Though a page back in 2002, her library career truly began in 2009 when she got her first librarian gig on her birthday, no less, and has been going strong ever since. Her love of genre spans a lifetime, hers, and when we approached Sephira about appearing in the show's second season, we asked what kind of genre literature was on her mind. Thus, Norse mythology and fantasy fiction. And here we are with Sephira. Hello. Hello. Really happy to have you here. Thank you so much for giving us some time in your day off. I know you're very busy uh, being head of both the Osgood and Merrill collections. Well, yes. I mean, I do get a day off now and again, which is always nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. They don't want them wearing you out. So uh, you have been really into sort of Norse mythology and Norse mythology as it intersects with fantasy, sci-fi, etc. literature recently. And so I thought maybe we could have a fun chat about that today. Why? Starting with the simple question, what drew you to it? I know you're a big fan of heavy metal. Was that part of it? That is part of it, but uh, it, it goes, you know, I, I actually had to think about this myself, uh, trying to sort of figure out where my, where my interests sort of began. Um, I, I can't precisely pinpoint where it began, but I know that uh, I was mad for anything to do with the Middle Ages as a child. And uh, in my teens, I was quite obsessed with the Warcraft franchise. Um, yeah. And of course, the fictional setting of Azeroth, where the game takes place, is very much a medieval setting. The humans are modeled on more stereotypical Vikings with their weapons and raiding activities. Their ships look curiously exactly like Viking longships. And later, I became quite obsessed with Skyrim, which I still play to this day. But I do read anything I can get my hands on with a Viking theme. Um, I did start listening to bands from this region in my later teens, early 20s, uh, you know, quote unquote heavy metal bands, uh, with which you may or may not be familiar, are bands like uh, Emperor and Dimmu Borger, who hail from Norway. And uh, I'll tell you a fun fact about the band I just mentioned, Dimmu Borger. They're the first Norwegian metal band to break into the U.S. top 50 since AHA did it in 1982 huh? with their song Take On Me. Um, I suspect a lot more people are familiar with the AHA song than the metal band I mentioned, but, you know, a lot of talented artists come from this region. Um, so, you know, these days I am still listening to a lot of music and still gaming when I can. Uh, but also I'm trying to slowly read the old Norse texts in translation. Mm. And I'm also learning Norwegian and German and really who knows how far the rabbit hole will go. <laughs> I think it's fair to say that like unborn children by this point are familiar with Marvel's Thor and Loki uh, versions, uh, you know, the miniseries and all that. Uh, and then from there, we go all the way through to like new book releases. Like I was just checking out the uh, Grimnir series written by Scott 
Odin, fortuitous last name there, uh, I would say it's fair to say that Norse mythology is kind of all the rage right now. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on why that would be. And have you noticed an increase uh, in interest from people using the collection as regards that? I wouldn't say I've noticed a specific rise in use in the collection. Um, however, I have noticed a large influx of material to do with the, the topic that we've been acquiring. And I think that's because a lot more of it has been published in recent years. To say there's been an explosive rise of pop culture manifestations in, in text, film, TV, uh, games, music is uh, maybe an understatement. Um, you know, we're situated here in Canada and so much of our traditional literary influences still are North American and British in origin and also in the English language. And English is a Germanic language, even though it evolved from a different part of the language tree, so to speak. It shares roots with the languages spoken in Northern Europe before it evolves away in a whole other direction. You know, Northern Germanic languages grouped in one place, Western Germanic languages grouped in another, which is where you'll find English. So maybe it's not too much of a stretch to say that we feel some sort of kinship with their history because of some sort of deep-seated shared linguistic understanding. I like to think that's the case. The history of the Vikings is also one that's shrouded in mystery because they transmitted their stories orally rather than textually. And what is written down was captured by writers well after Christianity had taken over in the, re in the region. So Vikings had a really well-developed spirituality all their own before what I sometimes call the onslaught of Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's also why people find them appealing, because their history harkens back to something that's more primal and more original. They were pagan people long before the areas were Christianized. And uh, due to this mystery, they're sometimes wildly romanticized or sensationalized because they're, you know, these great pirates of the seas, uh, fierce warriors and all that. Um, but the, the stories of the Vikings are also the lost stories of the Norse people and not generally taught in schools. Uh, they're the hidden histories of pre-Christian times. Um, I have another music reference that actually comes in handy here as an example. But uh, there's, there's a very prolific band called Enslaved who are from Norway. And there's this wonderful 12-part documentary on YouTube um, about the band's origins and activities, and it goes through their discography. Anyway, uh, the Enslaved are actually quite renowned. The band has uh, 15 full-length albums, and they have won the Norwegian equivalent of the Grammy Award, uh, the Spellman Priest, at least uh, five times so far. But in this documentary, anyway, the two founding members talk about the way that the Old Norse legends and cosmology were never taught to them in schools, but that when they got wind of it, they wanted to know more. So they've incorporated uh, so much of that tradition now in their music, the Norse concept of the nine worlds in the cosmos, the gods, the runes, the places, the characters. So their music is entertaining, but also actually quite educational if you take the time to learn about the topics that they sing about. Um, and countless bands have actually incorporated tellings and retellings, uh, references to the legends and in, in, into their art and music, even the band you, names, for instance. Yeah. I'm curious, are you familiar with what would be the sort of oldest accessible source material? Like you say, it was passed down orally, so can't get the originals. But um, what, what is, would it be those sort of very early Christian texts or any of those still left around? Like how, how long, how far back can we go along this game of telephone? to find, you know, sort of the earliest versions uh, that are accessible? Um, well, there are lots of inscriptions around Northern Europe uh, written in, in runes, you know, on, on stones, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And there are sort of short, 
short descriptions, not so much storytelling. Um, and I guess runes are more pictographs. So, you know, one symbol kind of encompasses like an idea or a vision um, rather than um, like an alphabet where you're spelling out word for word, you know, uh, something you're trying to express. So most of what we know about about this time was actually written down about 200 years later in the 13th century by, um, I think the one of the major texts that we look at still for this history is uh, written by a person named Snorri Sturluson. He was a Icelandic historian, and he wrote uh, the uh, Edda prose, as it's called. It might be pronounced Edda. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but anyway, it's the, he basically gathered the stories together of, uh, you know, the, the little that is known. And this is where we get our idea of the uh, Norse cosmology and the the, the ordering of um, kind of their culture and their life. Okay. And would you say, like, because we definitely have plenty of stuff based off of Greek and Roman myth, but I just feel like my whole life I've seen Norse mythology getting riffed off of more. Uh, would you, I'm wondering, um, like, what are sort of the substantial differences between, say, Norse mythology and the Greek and Roman myths upon which so much other stuff has been based? There's probably a lot in common, but I think this is where we make the distinction between myth and legend. Because um, I think we take myth to be something that's quite purely fictional, whereas for the Norse, their gods were were real, you know, and their their relationship to the gods um, was was part of everyday life. I don't think they were considered. I think sometimes myths become sort of cautionary tales or tales to explain natural phenomenon in the world, whereas um, I think in in this case the legends were were quite simply part of the reality of everyday life in in the Viking world. Okay. And so to bring it back to the present for a second, if you've been looking at sort of this older material, would you say there are any substantial differences between the obvious fact that Spider-Man wasn't flying around, uh, between uh, sort of the original conceptions or earlier conceptions of characters like Thor and Loki, as opposed to how we're seeing them now in our big screen? Well, I think, you know, with the, the Marvel comics, of course, they're always taking a little bit of license with everything and everything's a bit more glamorized. I think um, in in essence, though, that, you know, Thor's sort of uh, the, the qualities of him being, you know, strong and mighty and wielding the hammer Mjolnir, I think those are all, you know, those those are all things that are uh, consistent. And Loki being um, sort of the, tr- the trickster and um, plotting, you know, I think those are all, again, very consistent. Okay, okay. Because I always wonder, you know, I mean, they're trying to sell the product, and so they're going to make the characters much more likable, even Loki, though he's uh, ostensibly a villain. And then you go back it's, to your old myths and some and legends, and sometimes it's kind of like going back and reading the original Grimm's fairy tales. And you're like, oh, people were kind of rough in these stories. <laughs> mm-hmm. More people died. More children got thrown off bridges or whatever. Thor is not considered to be the sharpest tool in the shed mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in, in the stories. I think he's considered to be, you know, very strong, but not very smart. Um, so I don't know if maybe we've made him smarter in, in more recent <laughs> depictions, you know, which would be, you know, a, a nicer depiction for sure. And I'm sure Loki's probably been made to look a little nicer as well, because some of the older stories, I think they have him, you know, being quite, quite mean and quite, you know, quite dishonest. Okay, so what, um, I, I know they're kind of more legends, more and more like, they're viewed, they were viewed at the time almost like history, but like what, what values and lessons would you say Norse mythology mostly focuses on teaching? Like what, uh, what, what were the sort of common lessons to be taken from, from their stories? Well, I think in general, 
not not just the um what we'll call it the Norse pantheon, I guess. Just, you know, if we think of like everyday Viking people or what we understand about their culture, I think what I've always found very interesting is that there is there has always been this sense of hospitality written into the sort of just the everyday kind of code of conduct. So, uh, you know, it might be because a lot of the people who lived in, in more rural places, um, you know, it was a, a bigger deal to get around many, many centuries ago. So, you know, uh, wandering travelers were, were welcomed if they showed up at your door and you weren't, didn't think they were there to rob you necessarily. Maybe they were there just because they needed a place to stay and a hot meal for the, during their uh, travels. And I think that wasn't considered out of the ordinary. You know, I think if anything, people welcomed travelers and at least that's my sense of it from what I've, from what I've read time and again, um, there was less suspicion about you know, people kind of just showing up. Yeah, I think that's a really neat way of putting it. And it does make me think, you know, while you're saying that, I wondered if maybe uh, the fact that the um, Norse gods often feel much more approachable uh, may also come from the fact that, as I understand it, at least Norse society didn't have quite the same strict hierarchy as, say, ancient Greece, where, you know, there was that whole pyramid of, like, uh, people who aren't citizens, people who are slaves, people who are citizens, but they're women, you know, and so on and so forth, right? <laughs> uh, and then their, their gods tended to be very uh, distant and very, you know, strict in terms of how they interacted with people, whereas the Norse gods, it practically feels like you could walk into a beer hall uh, and meet most of them. I mean, even Odin doesn't feel like so afar. He feels like a big gruff uncle or a granddad or whatever, to me at least when I read stuff <laughs> uh, related to this. Yeah, and a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of the accounts say that, you know, when the warriors die, that's where they'll end up. They'll end up, you know, in Valhalla, in the hall with Odin, you know, basically drinking and feasting till, you know, forevermore, which doesn't sound so bad. And yeah, that does sound, he does sound like someone you just have a, you know, mug of beer with. <laughs> yeah, I think that's kind of part of it, too. I mean, however much truth there is to it, this this idea of both uh, the Norse gods and then the people who worship them as being very boisterous and almost like party animals also raiding and pillaging so hmm, but you know right. <laughs> there's this kind of like energy to them that i i don't see as much and as i say that what tends to come off as a more sterile uh, mythology and people with the, the greeks and the romans they're all very cerebral while the norse stuff seems to be very much of the heart would you say that's fair yes i think that's fair i think uh a lot of the stereotype we have about vikings is that they're somehow barbaric and you know cultureless people and godless people and you know whereas their tactics might certainly have been different than than some of the other groups but they certainly did have their own culture and they certainly did have their own uh spirituality and i think they were just so foreign to you know when they finally sort of uh, started, I guess, raiding in the 8th century or whenever it was, uh, no one had ever seen them before. So I think it was just sort of like, what is this? What is, you know, who are these people? What is this language they're speaking? You know, it, as with anything new, I think it was just maybe shocking, you know. But um, from the research I've done, I, I've gathered that this stereotype, you know, we, we have with the Vikings wearing the horned helmets, um, that they absolutely did not wear horned helmets. <laughs> and apparently that stereotype comes straight out of the uh, the Wagner opera, the um, Der Ring des Nibelungen, or the, the Ring of the Nibelungs, the Ring Cycle. It's funny because the textual resources that Wagner used to research, uh, to create his work, were some of the same resources that Tolkien consulted to uh, create his Lord of the Rings. Tolkien is said to have vehemently opposed any similarity between his work and Wagner's, other than that the shape of the ring in both stories is round, and that's where the similarities end. Now, 
Tolkien was a Christian, very devout Christian. So even though he drew heavily from uh, Norse legends, uh, you know, they're they're somewhat Christianized, I guess, maybe to make them more palatable to the audience, I, I, I couldn't say. But um, there are definite parallels. So um, Middle Earth itself. Uh, so in, in, in Norse cosmology, how it's often pictured is this uh, sort of tree called Yggdrasil, and there are the nine worlds that sort of come off of its branches. So there's the the realm of the elves and the realm of fire and the realm of uh, the dwarves and the realm of the gods and the realm of men, which is Midgard or Middle Earth. All of the action in Lord of the Rings takes place in this, you know, Midgard, Middle Earth place, which also happens to be in, in Norse uh, cosmology, the, the realm of, of humans, of, of, of men. Gandalf is a very Odin-like character, you know, the sort of mysteriousness of him, even his um, appearance. Often Odin is depicted with the, you know, the, the cloak and the, the hat and his magical abilities, of course, um, you know, well, Odin's a god, so Odin's the all-father, so I guess he's expected to have <laughs> a magical ability. A lot of the um, the weapons that feature in Lord of the Rings, like the really um, iconic weapons, they are crafted by the dwarves. And in Norse mythology also, the dwarves are considered the craftspeople for all of the really iconic um, weaponry, including Thor's hammer, Mjolnir, which we all, you know, hear no end of, right? Uh, so the, the dwarves are the craftspeople in both places. There's a realm of elves in Norse cosmology, and of course the elves definitely have a spot in, in you know, they figure heavily in Lord of the Rings. So I think there are a lot of very, very interesting parallels. Um, even even the character Sauron and, and and the ring and the journeys, uh, you know, there there are there are lots of similarities you'll find if you read the the old Norse um, stories. I think of uh, Paul Anderson's The Broken Sword, or how um, uh, if I remember correctly, Thor and Loki show up in the later uh, African Grey Mouser stories by Fritz Leiber. Neil Gaiman has at least three works I'm aware of where the Norse gods just show up, <laughs> including uh, a 2017 book literally called Norse Mythology in which he reimagined those myths. So like, there's no shortage of notable authors who've built on these stories. Other than those I've just mentioned, who have you read and who would you recommend? It's funny because, you know, I, I recently read Neil Gaiman's North, uh, Norse Mythology. I hadn't gotten my hands on it before and... Um... I actually listened to it in audiobook, and he's got such a lovely voice for narr narration, you know, so it was actually really a pleasant experience. But also, like, his, uh, his knowledge is very, very broad on the topic. And it really is a good um, starting point, I guess, if you've never, maybe if you've never read any of the Norse uh, mythology stories or you, you know, aren't that sure about uh, the history of it, it actually is, it spells it out quite well. So I, that would, that would be one of my top recommends to be honest but um i recently read another one that was published i think it was in 2021 but it could be 2020 um called the, the witch's heart by genevieve gornicek and it's a it's a debut novel and um for a debut novel i mean i can't wait till she writes more books it, it was it was wonderful and actually it deals with um a loki and a, a witch named angriboda uh, with whom he has three children, and they they figure quite heavily into the uh, into the stories if you read if you read them. And uh, she's basically hiding from Odin, and it's like a game of hide and seek across several lifetimes. If if you if you have read Norse mythology and you are more familiar with the characters, then there's that 
extra layer of understanding as you read through it. You think, oh, wow, this is a great reimagining or a great retelling. And if you have absolutely no knowledge of any of these things, it's still a great story. Like it's still a wonderful read and you don't have to have any prior knowledge. One more I'd, I'd plug is, um, I think it was from 2017. Um, it's a book called The Half-Drowned King by Linnea Hartsdicker. I believe it's the first in a series, and I've only read the first so far. But uh, she draws from the Icelandic sagas as well. And um, she says that she can actually trace her lineage all the way back to Harald Fairhair, who is uh, the, the first king of all Norway. And so she's actually taken this inspiration, which has sort of become a family inspiration for her. Um, there's the story of him and his right-hand man, and she's, you know, woven a story out of it, which is actually quite beautiful to read. Cool. That's also really interesting. Well, I'll have to link to those in the show description so people can go off and find them most easily. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, when I was watching, uh, sorry to keep coming back, but it's just the most easy touchstone, the, the Marvel movies, I remember really digging the character of Sif, who I later learned was actually, uh, she was just kind of like a buddy in the movies, from what I remember, but uh, in the Legends, wasn't she Thor's wife? Uh, I think, I, I'm just wondering if there are any stories you've seen where people kind of run with Sif and give her some more star time. I kind of felt, always felt like she got shortchanged uh, in, in the Marvel stuff. Well, nothing that I've read personally, but of course I have not read anywhere near what's available. So um, I would hope so, though, because I really, similar to the uh, the Witch's Heart story that I just mentioned, um, that the, the Angraboda character also doesn't get a lot of attention because it's her children who sort of, you know, she has basically children who are a snake and a wolf and, <laughs> you know, I mean, they, and, and Loki himself is such a sort of grand character that I think maybe she, she's somewhat overlooked as well. And it's nice to see her story. It really is about her uh, primarily and everyone else just kind of figures around her. So I don't know specifically about Thor's wife, but uh, I think that that sounds like a book waiting to be written. Yeah, true, true. Okay. So, I think it's fair to say, definitely going by some of the um, internet presence of these things, you know, some some people would argue that Norse myths are perhaps a, a little too white. And yet, the original stories and the speculative fiction that has been influenced by them attracts such a universal audience. You know, I'm, I'm wondering, why, why do you think it's so universally beloved? I know for myself, I like to think that well, I was born in Canada, so I like to think there's something about being Canadian that the appeal of the North is something that's naturally captivating. Uh, even if my parents are from a comparatively very sunny locale, <laughs> my parents are from Trinidad and Tobago. You know, you couldn't get further away from uh, from uh, Northern Europe, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think the appeal has more to do with uh, what we maybe understand to be kind of the, the heart of the Viking culture or what we have at least romanticized it to be. I mean, I, I, I have to say, when I think about the fact that the, the Vikings never got to write down their own histories and that what we know of them is written by people who either were not of the same culture or definitely had a completely different belief system, I think of the kind of erasure that's happened right here in Canada with our own Indigenous people. And, you know, they are also a group that typically transmitted their knowledge and stories orally. Um, and there were obvious colonial efforts to erase their language and to replace it with the language of the oppressors. Uh, not to get too heavy, but, you know, uh, so much of this history was lost. So... I think, you know, no matter where you are in the world or, or, or where you come from, there's just something about 
recovering lost stories, um, people really want to know their origins, true origins. And even if you're not from a culture, maybe you want to learn about that culture. And um, the history, the culture, traditions of so many groups has been obscured, you know. But I think I think uh, we have so much more information readily available now, and so many more ways to share it. That um, I think that's part of the appeal. It's it's part of the uh, the finding out process. I think people are are happy to kind of like ask the question, but not not just ask the question. Actually, try to find some answers. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Certainly part of the mystique for me whenever I've read uh, any stories rooted in more in, say, the history side, but also the mythology side, it's been uh, stories that I found which are kind of told around that cusp where Christianity is making its inroads but has not yet wiped out the pagan beliefs. So it's like a really interesting tension there. And this idea of trying to preserve their culture, but the future is coming, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I think you're really onto something there. It's very, very appealing. I think we can all get into like, it's almost, it's almost an underdog sort of vibe. Uh, to some of these stories of the Norse legend, I think, uh, because of that, because of how we know history interacted with their legends that can make it really appealing. Okay, so I guess uh, we can sort of tie this off by just asking, what are your thoughts and, and plans for the future of the Merrill Collection? A broad question, I realize, but uh, anything goes. What, what, what would you like to be able to try and do and accomplish with it? Well, certainly more promotion. I think um, finding either new ways to promote our collections or tried and true ways but on more channels but also continuing to build a collection that's relevant uh, we are still the place people come to find unusual material or um, rare material that they won't find anywhere else so continuing that type of work and i think programs are also i mean of course uh, in-person programs have not been reinstated we don't know when that will happen i just i'm just you know my blue sky thinking is that, you know, once programs are reinstated, I would love to just go back to that almost hectic pace of programming because bringing people into the collection, welcoming people to the space really helps us to sell, you know, why it is so special and um, get people reading speculative fiction. Yeah, we can't have enough of those, at least in my unbiased opinion. <laughs> Okay, well, sounds wonderful. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time today and talking with us. Really appreciate it, Zephyr. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This has been Unknown Worlds of the Merrill Collection, hosted by myself, Oliver Brackenbury, and produced by Chris Dickey as part of the Friends of Merrill. The Friends are an all-volunteer group dedicated to promoting the Merrill Collection through events and projects like this show. Learn more at friendsofmerrill.org. You can also check out the show notes for our social media links and to further explore today's topic. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time in another world.